All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And it is the start of 2020. And I just it's just been great hearing from everybody about your goals and what's going on and you know, things I think that are maybe standing in your way that you need to overcome to get to where you want to get to. And so I'm really excited to share Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler with you today. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And so Jen sent me an email and it said, hey, John, what if instead of attempting to resolve conflict, we could free ourselves of conflict. And I'm like, oh, I need to read this because conflict is all around us. It is, I think, one of the most limiting things in our lives for just experiencing a life where we're just alive and extraordinary things are happening. And I do a lot of work with organizations and coaching leaders. And you know what? When there's gossip that's in a culture, and that's unresolved conflict leading to us talking about other people. It is a cancer that just completely limits performance. And I just look at conflict across organizations, uh, across generations, and there's different approaches. And so I'm really excited to have you on here today, Jen, and actually talk about all of this. And so just a little background. You're the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group. It's a New York-based consulting firm. And you counsel CEOs and leaders on how to optimize organizational health and growth with career spanning to the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, two decades of consulting to CEOs and senior teams, grassroots work with Middle East leaders, and research on terrorism and long-term conflict for the uh, Department of Homeland Security. So Jen has some incredible experience. You're also a keynote speaker. You are inspiring, so your audiences that hire you are very fortunate. So if you guys are looking for a great speaker out there, and you work from startups to big Fortune 500 companies like I do, I love kind of that breadth and depth of working with different people. And uh, graduate of Tufts University, you have a PhD in social organizational psychology from Columbia. Okay, so conflict. Jen, what led you to write a book on conflict. And the name of your book, by the way, is Optimal Outcomes. Free yourself from conflict at work, at home, and in life. And I think that's so important. But let's just start with that. What led you to write this book? Well, John, this has been my whole career. So 20 years of work in the field of negotiation, conflict studies. And if you want to kind of go even farther back, I grew up in a family of screamers and door slammers. And so had to learn from a very young age how to deal with people who were in conflict with each other, including with me. Mm -hmm. And I had, luckily, a wonderful model in my maternal grandmother. Her name was Florence. And she is what I now call a conflict whisperer. She would sit in between my immediate family in the car on Sundays. Every Sunday, we would travel from the Bronx in our little apartment and travel to Connecticut where my uncle and aunt lived. And she would sit in the back in between me and my brother and my parents would be in the front, my dad driving. And just by the sound of her voice, I mean, there would be screaming going on every which way. And Grandma Florence would just say, sha, sha, in her very Yiddish way. <laughs> and she could just calm everyone down. 
just by the presence, just by the sound of her voice. And she would then tell us a story. And so it was growing up both with the conflict and with Grandma Florence's example that led me, I think, to be interested and also be naturally helpful and like a conflict whisperer to other people in my life. And so then immediately after graduating from college, I went into work at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, taught the getting to yes method from there for many years, and then went back and did my PhD to look at why does conflict resolution sometimes not work? How does conflict become intractable? So this is really a lifetime's worth of work in this book about why do we get stuck in recurring conflicts and more importantly, from my perspective, how can we get ourselves out? Yeah, and if you look at it, you know, especially in the world today, especially just between, you know, humans, individuals, what do you think that underlying root cause that starts the conflict is? Yeah, I wish I had an, one answer for you. It would make all the research that my colleagues <laughs> have done a lot easier. <laughs> but the truth is, in fact, my, my advisor in grad school wrote a paper where he said it was something like 56 different causes of conflict that he identified. And those were just types of conflict. Those were not actual specific causes. So my perspective is the research bears this out. And I think also our own lived experiences often bear this out. There are so many multiple different kinds of causes of conflict. It can be hard to pinpoint just one. And that is what my advice in Optimal Outcomes draws on. It says, look, you're probably not stuck in conflict because of one thing or somebody did one thing or you did one thing and now you're stuck. It's probably a little bit more complicated than that. And part of the trouble, part of the reason why we stay stuck is that we're looking for the one cause. We're looking for it's your fault, you're greedy, there's something wrong with you. If you could only X, Y, Z, then things would be different. When the fact of the matter is, it's usually much more complicated than that. Mm. So one of the first exercises or one of the first practices that's in the book, I call them practices because the more we can practice doing these things, the more we cultivate them, the better we get at doing them, the more likely we are to be able to free ourselves from conflict. So that's why I call them practices. So one of the first practices is about mapping out the conflict. It's all about saying, I know I've been thinking that this is about me and my co-founder, or this is about me and my boss. But let me just take a step back for a minute and see if I can map out the situation. And I'm going to challenge myself to put more than just two people on this map. I'm going to absolutely start by putting me and my co-founder on the map. And then I'm going to challenge myself, who else belongs on this map? Who else is impacted by what we're fighting about? Who else has impacted the situation already? And not only who else in terms of people, but what else? What other influences are at play? Maybe it's my background, how I grew up. Maybe it's my co-founder's background and how he grew up. Maybe it's the sales team. Maybe it's the rest of the executive team that both of us are a part of. Maybe it's the VC funders who are funding our work together. So when we start to map it out, we start to see many different factors at play that we hadn't considered before. And I can't tell you, John, how often I do this exercise with people, either students in my class at Columbia or clients of mine when I'm sitting with them side by side or in a workshop setting. 
And I start to see the light bulbs go off immediately because people see, oh my gosh, it didn't ever occur to me that this person could be influencing this situation or this set of factors could be influencing the situation. And now that I see it, there's an obvious way out that I had never considered before. So this can be a really, really eye-opening practice to get used to doing that can help free you from conflict pretty quickly. So let's say I was having a conflict with Pyramid. Like, you know, I'm running a group and you're running the other group, right? And we're not getting along very well. And I might, you know what, you and I each have a relationship with the boss and it could be very different. Mine could be really good and you might feel like yours as a woman, right? Maybe you don't feel as appreciated, right? Or maybe I get kudos where you don't. Or there could be things that I'm not thinking about if I actually really look in and go, you know what, the boss actually treats both of us differently. So no wonder Jen in certain situations, you know, has a different behavior. Or it could be vice versa, right? You might be his favorite and I'm not. So I'm actually compensating for something. But all of a sudden, I start to look at the whole kind of maybe the system that we are both operating in versus just this one-to-one relationship. Is that right? Yes. So what you're talking about now has to do with what I call distinguishing between our ideal values, those Mm -hmm. things that we care about, that we are proud to say we care about. For example, I care about being successful or I care about doing a good job. Versus our shadow values, those things we're not proud to say that we care about, and often we're not even willing to admit them to our own selves. So for example, in the example you just gave, I might be unwilling to admit that I care about recognition, Mm. or that I care about my status in the eyes of the company or in the eyes of our boss. If I can't admit to myself that I care about being recognized, because I've been taught from a very young age, you must be modest. You know, it's not a nice thing for a young girl to toot her own horn. So if I learn that from a very young age, I learn also from a very young age that I should never admit to anyone, including myself, that I care about recognition. But the problem is I do care about recognition, right? Many people do. And so when I care about something, but I can't admit that I care about it. I push it down into the shadow of my unconscious self. Mm. And the problem is I think I'm pushing it away, but it's actually driving my behavior without me recognizing it. So of course you see it. Other people we work with see it. It's clear as day to all of you what I really care about, right? But there's no way in hell you and I could actually talk about it because I can't even admit it to myself. And it's also kind of a difficult thing for you to bring up with me, right? So this is how shadow values can really run the show and cause conflict in ways that can become completely undiscussable. So what I recommend when we notice either for ourselves or we have a strong guess, like we have a guesstimation that maybe someone else has a shadow value that they're not owning, We don't necessarily need to talk about it. And in fact, sometimes trying to talk about it directly can even make the situation worse, right? Can you imagine if out of the blue, you came to me and said, hey, Jen, I think you have a shadow value called recognition. You really want to be recognized by our boss, but he won't do it. And that pisses you off. You know, if I'm the kind of person who's incredibly self-reflective and aware and has zero defense, 
maybe there's a 5% chance that's, that conversation could go well, right? <laughs> but more than likely, I'm going to look at you like you have three heads. I don't know what you're talking about. Who are you to accuse me that I want to be recognized? So we don't even need to talk necessarily directly unless we have the kind of relationship with someone and we suspect that they have low defense and it's not going to cause even more harm to talk about it. But we don't have to talk about shadow values in an explicit way. Just you realizing to yourself, huh, you know what? Maybe Jen really wants to be recognized and she's not being recognized by our boss. The boss isn't giving her the credit she deserves. And maybe that's really difficult for her. What could I do differently given that that may be the case? You know, how could I act differently? Or what kinds of things could I do here that might just kind of take a little bit of the pressure off the situation if that were true? So you doing that vis-a-vis -vis me gives, I think, you a lot more empathy for me than you might have ever had before and kind of takes the pressure off you having to pointing your finger at me saying she's so obnoxious. Why is she acting that way? It's like, okay, I know why she might be acting that way because she's not being recognized or she feels she's not being recognized. And same for me. If I can come to terms, if I can honor my own shadow value, you can imagine my behavior might change, right? That instead of kind of trying to go about being recognized in these stealthy ways, I might be able to own, hey, I need to be recognized. Maybe I can go to the boss and say, hey, boss, I did X, Y, Z, and you're giving John credit for it, but not me. And that really is difficult for me. Can we talk about that? Well, I, you know, I think that's such a great scenario. And maybe we can talk about it as we go through these practices, right? But, you know, that person that you're working with who's always taking credit, right, who interrupts people in the meeting because they want to make sure their ideas heard. Their identity is almost so attached to an idea that if the team doesn't like the idea, they don't see it as separate from themselves, right? I've always tried to separate the two. If the team doesn't like my idea, that's not a reflection that, you know, I'm not a good thinker or I don't have something to add, right? But I've also seen other people that if you don't like their idea, they just shut down and that really changes their interactions. It leads to conflict. Sometimes it's either overt you know, verbal or very passive aggressive, but those are all different kinds of forms of conflict. So I, I kind of love where we're going with this because I think this is going to be really practical. So what is your first, let's kind of walk through some of your practices, Jen. What's the first one? The first practice is notice your conflict habits. Mm. So I, through many years of existing What if I don't have any? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Habit, <laughs> My habit is denial. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so through much research and 20 years of practice, I've identified four conflict habits that we see in all kinds of organizations and also at home and in public life. So here they are. The first one is we see some people very naturally and easily pointing their finger at other people and blaming others, right? So we do this with good intentions usually. Our aim is to win the argument, win the negotiation. We want to win. We're competitive and we want to win. But the downside of doing this repetitively or habitually is that we end up sometimes attacking or blaming other people or leaving them feeling as if we are leaving them feeling attacked, leaving them feeling blamed. And when this happens, instead of winning the situation or winning the argument, we're not winning at all. We're actually losing 
time, energy, money, space, right? We're losing so much mm-hmm. by continually seeking to attack and blame other people. So that's one habit. And I'll talk first about what it is that we're trying, you know, the good intentions behind each of these, and then also what we end up, the costs we end up paying for doing them. And then the rest of the whole method, the whole optimal outcomes method, and then the whole book is all about how do we do something different, get ourselves out of these habits. Yeah. So that's the first one. Second one is we shut down. So maybe similar to what you were just saying before, well, what if I don't have any habits? I know you were totally joking, but this can be a habit that people get into where the good intention is I'm going to avoid this situation because it's not worth my time. It's about an issue that's really not that important or it's with a person who's really not that important to me. So let me just let it go. And of course that can be a very great response in a situation that's not about something that's important to you or with somebody who's important to you, not with someone who's important to you. The problem is when we do this habitually, when we grow up from a young age learning that the way to deal with conflict is not to deal with conflict and to avoid it, we get into these shutdown modes where someone else needs something from us and we're avoiding it at all costs. And what happens is the conflict is simmering in it's kind of stay it's you're stuck you're stuck because the conflict is staying in simmer mode and you're just waiting for it to explode which it often does the third conflict habit is we blame and we shame our own selves so where sometimes or some of us will habitually blame other people for when things have gone wrong others of us will actually blame and shame ourselves when things go wrong now the positive of this is that it helps us to learn So if you and I are in conflict and I ask myself the question, what could I do differently here to make this go better next time? That's great. That's me learning, trying to learn from the situation. But the downside is if I habitually do this, even in situations where objectively speaking, it is not my fault. There's not something specifically that I have done to contribute. Of course, I should say, I believe in almost every single situation that people are stuck in conflict, it's not 100% one person's fault and 0% the other person's fault. But let's just leave it at, if I'm constantly taking 100% of the blame on myself, habitually, that's not helpful either because Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in negative self-talk instead of actually seeing how can I move this situation forward and the conflict stays stuck. And then finally, and this one can be counterintuitive, but I've seen it time and time again, and I'm sure this may sound familiar to you because you've been around business for a long time as well, and that is that we relentlessly collaborate with other people, or we try to. So a lot of us, particularly younger generations, have been taught from a very young age we need to collaborate with other people in order to get along well in business and in organizations and teams in society. And the good part about that is that it often does lead to excellent really creative, innovative solutions. But the problem is when it doesn't, and we're just kind of banging our head against the wall trying to get other people to collaborate with us, and they're not, we can find ourselves stuck banging our head up against the proverbial wall, not getting anywhere. And so these are the four conflict habits that sometimes help us, but when we do them habitually, can lead us to get stuck if we don't have other ways of operating. So again, the whole point here is to first of all acknowledge, ask yourself, which one of these four 
tends to be my primary conflict habit. And in fact, if they go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, they can take an assessment that will help them find out within the span of about five minutes, it doesn't take very long to take this quiz, what their conflict habit is. And it just can be very helpful for people to know that. So once you notice what your conflict habit is, you have a much better chance of stopping doing that. But the first key is self-awareness. That's the place to begin. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting because everybody listening, before we started recording, I said, hey, there's somebody on my team who's younger. He's Gen Z. And I said, hey, this is how this person handles conflict. And I said, is this a generational thing? And Jen, I love what you said. You said, no, that's actually a, one of the habits that he has developed versus being more of a, you know, a generational thing. There's some other generational things that we'll cover, but that was really helpful to me because his mode is shut down, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of the generational thing. They just don't want to shut down. They don't want to deal with it. They won't have the conversation versus now that actually being something that's specific to him and using your book and using that awareness is now a way that I can work with him, coach him, develop him now. And, you know, I'm going to also probably guess at what my habits are. Um, Is it fair game to ask you how you would classify yourself in this? You know, I think. Because there's an interest. I'll tell you in a minute why I ask, because we can do a little bit of interesting. Okay. I I handle conflict really well until I get to a level of frustration. Uh Right. Because I usually have some really good self-awareness, but I get to a level of frustration where I just get really short and I try not to do that. So it'd probably be more in the finger pointing, blaming, and it's not always external, but that's my internal track because I've really had to work hard at it. But that's probably my default right there. But you know, I also do have an element of shutdown because just my growing up, we had a family like yours, but conflict would also often lead to uh, very negative outcomes. So avoidance, So when my wife and I were first married, she wanted to talk it out. And when we got to conflict, I'm like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. And that would even make her more upset because she felt like then I don't care, but I actually do care about the conflict. But when it gets to a certain place, I just didn't want to talk about it. So, and it was really hard in our marriage. You can just see, I mean, conflict is, I mean, this would be so easy if people weren't involved, but... (laughs) You got it. Well, I want to point out a few things from what you've said. And first of all, I want to thank you for your honesty. And I will tell you, of course, you are not alone. And I also share, if you are correct about diagnosing yourself as, you know, being in that first category of blaming others, I share that one as well. I grew up in this family of screamers and I got it too, right? So when mm-hmm. my mom and I, and I talk about my mom and me, the story between us, which is also in my TEDx talk on YouTube, but that story runs throughout the book. And it's all about how we both share that attack habit and blame others' habits. So we're constantly attacking and blaming each other, which doesn't go very well, right? But so first of all, I want to say, I call it your primary conflict habit, because it's what you fall back to just when you're not even thinking, right? So what's your knee-jerk reaction? And that it probably, even I have to admit, right? That it does cut across lots of different contexts in my life. That, right? So at work, at home, I tend to kind of go to the place of blaming others as a knee-jerk reaction. That said, absolutely the context matters. And so it makes sense to me that when you're first starting out in your relationship with your wife, you're aware you grew up in a way where, you know, people did it a certain way, or you're aware, hey, my knee-jerk reaction might be to 
blame others. So I'm going to hold back. I'm going to restrain. And that made things also difficult. So context matters. And you can use a different habit depending on the context. But I would still say typically we have a primary conflict habit. So that's one thing to point out. Another well, you also talked about shadow values. I mean, looking back on it now, yeah. I, you know, sometimes you blame others because that's easier. And when I really looked at it, I was actually the source of the conflict because I wanted to be right. I didn't like my judgment question. I had a kind of a very, I guess, low self-image, right? My identity was really formed, I think, from seeking the affirmations of others, right? I really wasn't strong in kind of my own identity. And I know that how I was showing up in a lot of situations generated the conflict that then I didn't want to have to deal with. Right. If I'm just being honest. Right. <laughs> so. If you had been able to at that time, or at least now, it sounds like you have honored a shadow value of, I need to be right, right? Or being right. Yeah. And then figure out, you know, why is that? That's not okay. I want to make good decisions, but right. it doesn't mean I have to be right. But yeah, it's been a process. Yeah, absolutely. That is the work of shadow mm-hmm. values, is for people to be able to own and honor I want, you know, whatever that shadow value is. So in the case you're just describing, a shadow value of I want to be right on the one hand and an ideal value of, I'm just taking my best guess, love. I love my wife and I also want to be right. And so part of the work in the shadow value. And I love when my wife thinks I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the both hands. Very good. Nice work. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding, Jen. I had, a, I had to throw that in there. You had to go there. But really, the part of the work is to say, look, it is possible to both love my wife and also want to be right. And the question is, can I acknowledge both of those do already exist inside of me? Can I be okay with that? Can I allow that need to be right to be there? And once I acknowledge that it's there, what do I choose to do with it? So it sounds like that's the work you've done over you know, a good span of time. Yeah. How to see it for what it is and then kind of let it be <laughs> what it is and not necessarily have to keep to kind of let it go. Right. So yeah. that, that is a choice we have with our shadow values to let it go. But I do want to come back to this idea of knowing what our conflict habit is and taking our best guess at what someone else's conflict habit mm. is. We can start to see how our habits and their habits form a pattern of interaction that get and keep us stuck in what I call a conflict loop, right? So the person that you were talking about who, hey, I think he might have a person on your team who has a shutdown habit and hey, maybe I have a pointing fingers at other people habit. I mean, that's a classic, I identify five classic conflict patterns in the book and that is high at the top of the list, right? Is mm-hmm. one person pointing the finger at the other one and that other person's going and hiding. And that is one way we stay stuck. Another very common pattern is what I've talked about about me and my mom, I'm attacking and she's attacking back or she's attacking and I attack back. Also very easy to get stuck in a pattern like that. So again, we wanna notice not only what is my own conflict habit, what is the other person's conflict habit or what might it be, but also what is the pattern that we might be stuck in given those conflict habits. And once we notice the pattern, the question is how can we take pattern breaking action? How can I personally take pattern breaking action to break that conflict loop, to free ourselves from the conflict loop? 
And what I like to say is, as long as your behavior is constructive, there's so many choices of what you could do to break that pattern, to do something different. It almost doesn't matter really what you do as long as your behavior is constructive. So suddenly acting the same way over and over again, now there's so many choices of what else you could do. And we're also not waiting for the other person to agree. We're not waiting for the other person's behavior to change. We're taking it upon ourselves to make the change, which of course gives us a lot more freedom and a lot more control in the situation. Yeah. Awesome. I love this. Okay. So as we move into the, what's the next practice? I don't think we'll have time to get through them all, but everybody can get the book, but I'm just letting everybody out there know this is such an important thing to focus on. And I'm so glad you've done this work, Jen, because once we do this for ourselves, here's what I found, right? Then I can actually help other people start to get aware of not only their habits, but how to break them. Because one of the biggest things when I'm working with companies is communication, right? It's the quality of our relationships, it's trust. And I think something that erodes all that is unresolved conflict. So this is an incredibly important topic. So with that said, what is the next practice we should focus on? So there are eight practices total. And the next one in the way that the book is organized is emotions. So how to use your own emotions in your favor and also how to use your own emotions in your favor, right? Not such a focus on other people's emotions because as it turns out, we have a lot more control over our own emotional experiences and our own emotional responses than we do over other people's. And so we can acknowledge how they're expressing their emotions toward us, but part of the key is not taking on other people's emotions as our own. They may be responding to us, they may be reacting to something that we did or that we said, but what can be super helpful is for us to acknowledge even if they are, their response is their response. It is not about us. Sometimes not even at all, right? Sometimes it's partially about what we did or said, but sometimes it's not, right? So if, if I'm in interaction with someone else and they get angry and yell at me more often than not, is that about me and because I'm a horrible person? Or might that be about how they respond when they get angry, right? When they get angry, what they do is they pick up the phone and they send and they call and scream at me or they send a nasty email, right? That may have something to do with me and what I've said or done, and it may not. So something that can be very, so that's a piece of this work is to kind of separate between what's me versus what's not me. So let me ask you a question about anger, right? The yeah. neuroscience. So let's say, like you said, hey, mom comes at me, I come back at my mom. I think there's right. also in the fight or flight, right? Yeah. So, yes. and I know for me, I've had to really work on some anger issues because instead of like, you know, having a conscious thought, I didn't like that, to feeling maybe disrespected to then going to anger, I just skipped all that and just as soon as the situation developed would go to anger. Yeah. And my understanding is, you know, when you're in that mode, your brain starts to fill with epinephrine or norepinephrine that changes cognitively, right? You don't have your full capacities to actually think in this mode. There's a lot of other things that are happening. But really what happened is when I allow myself to get angry, I kind of get stupid. I know for myself, right? So question for you, yeah. when conflict happens, and it is maybe my habit 
to go into anger, mm-hmm. right? Which then makes, I mean, then having a constructive dialogue is, it's probably, it's not going to happen. What are some things to, you know, start doing where I can actually maybe change that response instead of going into anger that I actually go to a different place emotionally that's a lot more constructive. So, John, this is the million-dollar question, or maybe the billion-dollar question. (laughs) This is, you know, one of the most difficult things for human beings to do, what you're asking. I do absolutely talk about it in the book because I personally, as you know, I share that same Gene, (laughs) it's very difficult to calm down when I feel angry. And I've worked with many clients, and of course, kind of as an aside, an interesting moment for me in writing the book was when I realized, as I was writing about the stories of working with my clients, is I realized I work with a number of clients who have anger management issues. And I work not only with them, but also the people who surround them. So I'm able to help them as well as the people who work with them learn how to manage it, how to contain their own anger. I don't typically use the word contain because I don't really think it's about containing something, but more about learning to work with the emotion. But in any case, so, you know, it was like a real kind of wake up aha moment when I realized the way I grew up might have influenced the kinds mm. of people that I like to work with and the kinds of ways that I can tend to have impact with people. So that was fun. But in any case, that was interesting to realize. But so this is the million dollar question. A few things on this. First of all, to know you are not alone. If you are somebody who struggles with feeling angry and that you're rational thinking is being bypassed like what you were just describing Mm -hmm. your amygdala is being hijacked in your brain when you start to feel angry and you start to do and say things that you really are not proud of just noticing that that is something that might be happening to you is a great first step in the right direction that's number one number two is one of the best answers that i have for this is to pause And there are two different types of pauses that I've found to be useful. One is what I call a proactive pause. And that means even when I'm not, and especially when I'm not hijacked, when I'm not triggered by something that's making me angry in the moment, on a regular basis, whether it's for one second a day or 30 seconds a day or five minutes, to take the time to sit quietly. It could be while I'm commuting on the train so that if I notice I'm on my phone and just texting like mad when I'm commuting, I can look up from my phone, stare out the window for a few minutes, just breathe. And if I have the capacity to ask myself, what am I feeling right now? And just notice the feelings inside, that can be super, super helpful. So in the book, I tell the story of every summer for the last couple of summers, I've gone on a four-day hiking retreat, backpacking retreat in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And the first time I did this, I was in the middle of writing the emotions chapter, and I decided that I was going to experiment with just noticing what I was feeling as I walked, as I hiked. And it was fascinating to me. I mean, it was like down torrential downpour practically the whole time. But, you know, sometimes it was lightning and cats and dogs raining. And other times it was little pitter-patter raining. And so I started to notice that my 
feelings were kind of coming and going the same way that the weather does, right? That one moment I'd be thrilled, like beyond grateful and thrilled and joyful and content to be outside walking in nature, something I absolutely love to do. And then like about five minutes later, I'd be pissed off as hell that, you know, I was lost on the trail or my boots were sinking into the mud and, and I was disgusted and it was disgusting. What, then, what am I doing out here? Hey, Stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, an hour later after that, I'd be sad thinking about people in my family who mm. had passed away and that it just kept changing. So just, you know, you don't have to go for a few days on a hiking trail be able to do this. You can be sitting on the commuter train. You can be in yoga class. You can be walking down the street to get a cup of coffee. You can be sitting at your desk and, you know, about to send an email and just say, I'm going to pause every time before I hit send or whatever your practice is, but make it a practice to pause and ask yourself, what are the feelings going on? This can be a lot easier for some people to do than others. And I'd say the harder it is for you, the more helpful of a practice it could be. Yeah. And I actually, you know, something I actually do with my clients is I actually have people actually start to journal that and say, Hey, what happened in your environment just now that created that feeling? And from that feeling, if you're, let's say you're working with a team, you're having an interaction, you know, what action did you choose? Because we actually choose our actions come from, come from those feelings. Right. And did that action that you chose give you the outcome that served you and what you're trying to do well? And if it didn't, let's go back and say, okay, because it's going to happen again, right? You're going to be in that proverbial thunderstorm where you're sitting in the office or talking with your spouse or your, especially your teenage kids. That's kind of be a whole nother episode. But, you know, and so what I have found is if I can say, okay, that's going to happen again. And this is how I felt in that I chose this action that did not serve me well. So how do I want to feel when that happens again? So here's an, just a quick example. And I think, you know what, we should schedule another time, make this part two, because I think this is so important. But I was walking through my family room and my teenage son, I looked at him and I said, Michael, I need you to mow the lawn today. And he just looked up at me and said, no. So my reaction, and this is a few years ago, went straight to anger. We had a high volume conversation in which he went and mowed the lawn. Okay. Now, what did that do to my relationship with my son? It did not improve it. Right. Okay. Now it's two weeks later. We've had a lot of rain. I look outside. Michael's sitting in the family room. And I said, Michael, I need to mow the lawn today. And he didn't even look up this time. He was on his phone. He just said, no. Now, between those two points, though, because I said, I don't want to have this relationship with my son. So what am I going to do? I said, next time he's going to be disrespectful. So next time that happens, what do I want to think? I want to think, you know what? This is my opportunity to mentor my son who's going to be an adult soon. How I want to feel instead of disrespected is unconditional love toward him. What's the action I want to take? I want to sit down and have a calm conversation. And I got to tell you, though, as soon as he did that, I went immediately to full on anger, just like I did before. But then I realized, you know what? I need to sit down next to him. So I kind of smiled, sit down next to him. And I said, Michael, when you said no, what did no mean? He was totally confused. He actually put down his phone and he looked up at me and said, Dad, well, I have this, this and this, and there's no way I can even do it today. 
I'm like, well, you, you know, you're actually, you're right. And I said, hey, you know, this is how this comes across when you talk this way. How is this affecting when you're kind of short with people, me, your coaches? And then I said, hey, bud, how would you like me to ask you? Because I was now trying to figure out what role I had in the conflict. He goes, dad, I hate when you come up to me and just demand I go do something. I'm like, oh, I hadn't, wow, I hate that too. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what? So I apologized to him for doing it that way. Mm -hmm. And so now it's really just that little bit improved our relationship. We stopped having almost all of our conflict now over the last two, three years. And now I just say, hey, Michael, this needs to be done. When can you get it done? And when he tells me, hey, I'll have it done by tomorrow at nine, he now does it. Right. Right. Or he says, I can't. You're going to have to have, you know, one of my brothers do it. So hopefully that was helpful, but. It's such a great example. And what you described in my language is that you took a pause after something didn't go well. You mm -hmm. reflected on what emotion you had been experiencing and what it led you to do, what action it led you to take and what outcome you got from that. And then you thought to yourself, next time this happens, how would I rather respond instead? What outcome am I looking for? And how would I rather respond instead? So there are a couple of things to add to that. Yeah. Because I think what so many people, and I think your original question, what you're really asking, what people really want is, how can I not have situation number one happen in the first place, right? How can I not get stuck in that? So, you know, one way to answer that question is, look, it's inevitable. And part of life is learning how to learn from those examples. That's one way to answer that question. But another way to answer that question is, if what we all wish for is to not get hooked in the first place, mm. we could also take... I told you there were two kinds of pauses, right? So I was describing the proactive pause. There's also what I call a reactive pause. And that's when you're in that moment, you've asked your son to mow the lawn and he looks up at you and says, no, that first time there's something we can do. I think the reason why I talked about proactive pauses first is because I think the more we take proactive pauses, it's much more likely that when we're in that moment with our son or with our coworker or with our co-founder or whoever it is, much more likely we're going to be able to bypass that hijacking of our brain or kind of deal with the hijacking of our brain and stop the hijacking, pause, ask ourselves, how do I want to respond here? And maybe, you know, a few other things that could happen when your son says no is you say, okay, hold on, I'll be right back, right? And you go take your pause then. Now, much more difficult to do that than what you actually ended up doing, which was to take the pause after the fact. But the well, in the moment, it takes a level of maturity that I'm still working toward. Very, very, very <laughs> difficult to do. You know, when our brain has been hijacked, very difficult to do. And much easier to do when we've done the proactive pausing on the hiking trail or in the yoga class or on the way to work on our commute or, you know, 30 seconds while we're flipping between applications on our computer screen and just take a breath, ask, how am I doing? What am I feeling? The more aware we are of that, the more likely we can in the moment. And of course, I tell a story in the book about my friend, Wendy, who she and I work together a lot. And we would often talk on the phone and we'd be in the middle of a really intense conversation about what we should do about a client project that we're working on. And all of a sudden she would say, hey, Jen, can you hold on for a minute? she'd click over to what sounded like she was clicking over to another call and she'd come back typically, you know, within a minute. But in that minute, she would come back and say, okay, Jen, here's what I think we should do. And in that minute, I also got time to think to myself, 
okay, what's going on here? Why are we in this intense conversation? Why is this feeling so difficult? And what could I do to move this conversation forward? And literally, I mean, she couldn't have been gone for more than a minute or two at the most. And we got the pause and we were able to move forward more constructively. So she, not me, (laughs) in that story, did have the wherewithal to say, hold on a minute. Just hold on. She didn't even say, like, let me think about this. But that's what she was doing half the time. Well, you know, that's so great. And, you know, it'd be because my wife and I have gotten to this place. But, and also with some of the people on my team and that I work with, we know each other so well. If we're starting to get into conflict and I say, hey, you know what, let's just put a pin in that just for a little bit, move on to something else. It's, you know, not the conflict. In the past, I would debate that. Like, no, we got to finish this. Now we're all like, I think also, you know, going through a book like this as a team and understanding each other's habits and even talking about it, like, hey, this is how John shows up, right? This is what tends to trigger John. This is how John handles the conflict. This is how Jen does. This is how Donna does. This is how Michael does. Can be really, really powerful. Taking a book like this, creating a reading plan. I think that's been some of the biggest growth some of the teams I've been on is actually taking books with really critical skills like what you're talking about here, Jen, and going through it and then just discussing it. Because now what you're doing, you're also creating a common language and you're also creating a way that we can actually talk about and even share and give some feedback to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, because all my defenses are down when we're all starting to share. And you might say, hey, John, you know, now that we're here, can I share something? This could just be me. But this is what I notice. Whenever this happens, this is what you do. And I think that limits you from, you know, from something. But anyway, so how do people find the book? How do they connect to you, Jen? What's the best way for people to follow up and just keep this conversation going with themselves? The best place to go is optimaloutcomesbook.com. And I also want to mention, because we've been talking about emotions, just like there's an assessment or like a seven-minute quiz that you can take to identify your own conflict habit, there's also an assessment online that you can take to identify the emotion traps that you tend to fall in. So just like what you just said, this would be a great exercise. Either one or both of these assessments would be super fun and super helpful for whole groups of people, teams of people in office environments and also families to take together. So you can find both of those assessments, your emotion traps and also your conflict habit at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment. So yes, please come. And there's a ton, ton of free resources online that are like a workbook for each of the eight practices that will help walk you through. So whether or not you even have the book, you can download those resources and get started today using these practices that we've talked about. It's very user-friendly and lots of worksheets that you can complete. Yeah, and I just want to let everybody know out there too, because I think this is so appropriate for teams. You've put together some phenomenal resources that people can tap into if the group is large enough to go through teams. You come in and you speak on it. You do workshops on this. I think this is one of the most critical skills, I think, for us to build a healthy organization that really values the uniqueness of everybody who's on a team. Because you know what? We're going to live in this world. Let's enjoy our time in this world. And we do that by, you know, learning these tools about ourselves and others on dealing with some of this stuff. I mean, we see so much conflict on the news and in the world around us, but that's not how we have to live our life. And that's the cool thing. 
So Jen, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I would love to have you back on anytime. This has just been a great conversation. I really appreciate you, the work you're doing, and I'm glad you went on that hike and put all that into a book, man. You just went, you went the extra mile. How's that? Literally. (laughs) Thank you so much, John. It has been a total pleasure and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Absolutely. Yes, me too. Great. 